Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment, and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. So one of the biggest issues that we have spent some time thinking about and I guess it's one of the biggest issues of the day is the relationship between Asia and in particular China and the West. Uh, people have focused a lot on that during this past lockdown year. And within America, these same kind of questions arise about how these different cultures and different uh, tribes should best get on together. And we have one of the world's foremost experts on a lot of that joining us today. And she's called Amy Chua from Yale. Hello, Amy. Hi, thanks for having me. There are multiple lines into this topic for you. Um, other than obviously being an Asian American yourself, you've written about political tribes and how we, how we can reconcile our natural instinct to feel loyal to our own tribe versus a more ideal way of living. I guess I'd, my first question to you is, if it's not a cancelable question, is do you still feel Asian and American or Asian American? You know, I, I'm not a big label person, and I actually have kind of written against identity politics. You know, I hate victimization. I tend to be a big optimist. Um, but yes, um, I do feel Asian American, uh, whatever that means. I think that probably means so many different things to different people. But I, you know, I'm an American citizen. I was born in America, but I was raised by two Chinese immigrants to this country who were really proud of their heritage, um, not about the government in China, but about Chinese civilization, Chinese history. My first language was Chinese. I was thrown into nursery school in the Midwest, not speaking a word of English. And I was raised to be very proud of where I came from. So, and also there's just how I look, you know, I mean, it's, uh, there's, there's, it, it's hard to avoid that. Um, so yeah, I still whatever it means. I do feel both somebody um, proud of her Chinese heritage and an American citizen, and I like exploring the complexities um, about that kind of dual identity. I wonder how do you feel that Asian Americans are experiencing that period? I mean, we don't talk so much about uh, the Asian group. I mean, do you do you feel like? It's been overlooked in some way. I mean, there were reports recently of violence 
increasing against Asian Americans. I don't know if you believe that to be true. Uh, what's your oh, reaction yeah. to that? Uh, yeah, so, you know, it's a, an extremely difficult period to be Asian American right now. Um, maybe this is um, not a politically correct thing to say, but, you know, when I was growing up in the Midwest in the, in the 70s um, and then California in the 80s, in the Midwest, I was the only Asian American in my entire class, maybe the entire school. Um, we were in Indiana and there were very, very few of us. So there were some downsides to that. That is, you know, slanty eyes, some bullying. But, you know, my parents were kind of immigrant grit, just deal with it. Um, and uh, I, nobody was really threatened by Asian Americans. So, so there were some downsides that you get discriminated, discriminated against and looked down on. But there wasn't this fear. Fast forward to today, it's just, you know, first there is tremendous resentment and um, I guess fear, uh, insecurity about Asian Americans because of college admissions. You know, uh, without affirmative action, you have schools in California um, or, pri or, you know, um, schools that you only get in based on test scores that are very prestigious in New York that are, oh my gosh, 80% Asian. Um, and there's a lot of resentment, understandably, towards that. Um, and then you've got China, a, a whole different source of insecurity. When I was growing up, Freddie, China was the poor man of the world. You know, uh, I mean, it was nothing. It was a developing country. Nobody feared China. So everybody was interested in Chinese food and culture. I would love to talk about it. It was a win. Now, um, on campus, I noticed that this anti-Chinese resentment slash fear is coming from both the left and the right, which is very unusual. You know, usually it's kind of one side or the other. From the right, um, it's this, they started this Wuhan virus, they deliberately injected it, They it's all their fault, and also they're stealing our jobs, and you know, that kind of xenophobic, whipping up populist demagoguery. On the left, there's this very deep anger at the human rights record of China. And this is a country that is persecuting everybody and there's no free speech. And um, and it's because of the campus climate, I don't feel that I can comfortably say, well, you know, that's a really complicated issue. Um, you know, the Hong Kong protests or, or you know, Tibetans, it's it's kind of all or nothing on uh, Ivy League campuses. You know, it's it's gotta be straight out genocidal country. So I actually feel much, much more that it's much harder for me to talk about these issues today um, uh, now that there are, you know, it, it's sort of charged in so many different directions. Is there almost a sense in which because it's thought of as a successful community, they're more sort of associated with the, the, the patriarchy or the dominant groups and that they don't need so much attention? Is that what's happening? Absolutely. And I don't know what the latest um, buzzwords are, you know, if it's, uh, I think, white adjacent, maybe Asian Americans are white adjacent or, uh, but I, you know, there are, yes, there are these um, not very helpful terms um, that um, are meant to depict this hierarchy. And so, you know, I, I just, in general, try to avoid that um, uh, because I just find it so unhelpful. I think the nature of the problems are different. I think no person, whatever their skin color, should be kicked on the street with Asians anti-racist you know, racist slurs directed at them, whatever your uh, uh, skin color is. So, But I also, you know, write about um, history, and I, I sometimes do feel there is this... Um, um, 
uh, I don't know if it's exactly divide and conquer, but you know, it's so many of these different groups, whether it's poor whites or African Americans or Asian Americans in Flushing, Brooklyn, that are most of the parents are actually uneducated. You have these common problems. And because we're so tribalized and everybody's in their own cocoon and it feels like a zero sum game, if you're helping them, you're, then you're against us. Um, you know, we can't even work on common solutions. So do you think it might be better to actually essentially emphasize race and ethnicity less in the conversations about bringing people up out of disadvantage and try to focus more on economics? In the ideal world, yes. You know, Martin Luther King's dream that we're all individuals. Um, and I don't even know if my answer right now is so colored by the fact that I've, I teach on an Ivy League campus to say that is immediately to be canceled. You know, it's immediately to have a probably a boycott. But, you know, putting that aside, I actually think I do have a more nuanced view. Um, I do know for a fact that, you know, I have very successful, um, you know, well-educated, not particularly activist African-American friends, and they are really scared for better or worse. I don't know, I know people have talked about the numbers when they're too young, when their teenage sons go out walking, if they're just going to be shot, you know, um, and that's not the kind of fear that I have, right? But I do have a different kind of fear, um, and, and they're, they, they're associated with a different set of stereotypes surrounding Asian Americans. I have found myself at the middle of a smear campaign where, you know, again, I hate my dad was like, always look at yourself first, never blame anybody else. Hard work will overcome anything. But I have been in the middle of a smear campaign where I can't help but notice that the things I'm being called sound really weird like a dragon lady. They're like, she's so, you know, powerful and deceitful and manipulative and intimidating. <laughs> um, and I'm like, that's funny. Like, you know, anybody who actually knows me doesn't think I'm like that. And where did they get those adjectives? So, you know, I, I'm not, I can see why different groups suffer from different forms of, uh, of discrimination. So you mentioned this uh, current smear campaign. Let's just get it out of the way, as it were, just so that our viewers understand what you're referring to. There's been some brouhaha about whether or not you invited students to dinner parties. And there's been sort of letters and people have been upset. And I'm not sure if you'd call it a cancellation attempt, but it's, it's nearly a cancellation attempt. Yeah, I was having a very good semester. I, I'm a pretty popular professor. My classes are, you'll like this. It's the only class at Yale Law School where you have both conservatives and liberals actually in the same class talking. And I work really hard at that um, and I'm very proud of it. But yeah, about a month ago, I suddenly heard from a, the student newspaper, um, do I want to comment that I'm being stripped from teaching this small group? It's like a little student seminar, which I didn't even want to do in the first place because I've been hosting drunken dinner parties with students and federal judges during COVID. And I, I really felt like this was straight out of a Kafka story. I mean, it, you know, sometimes there's like a little bit of truth in something. This was wacko. I've been in sweatpants for a year with my dogs. Not, you know, we're, we're like in masks. We don't see anybody. Um, and to make a long story short, I, I, it was a relatively small group of students who maybe saw some texts of other people cut and pasted. And I did something I've never done before. I fought back. I, I have never, I've always been a team player at my school. Um, I, I was so outraged because I, I emailed the dean and I said, are you going to stand by me? This is ridiculous. And instead I was interrogated, you know, 
this is the time to come candid. Um, have you had these dinner parties? And so I ended up writing a letter explaining that there were absolutely no dinner parties. And it's ridiculous that I had to hear this from the Yale Daily News. And I tweeted it, which is my, my Gen Z daughter said that I should do that to correct the narrative. I was just never done that before. But I think I survived and I think it actually came out well. I mean, I think an investigative reporter found that there were no dinner parties and I got smeared and dragged through the mud and called like I was operating nefarious rings from my house. What do you think drove it though? I mean, that's what's interesting, isn't it? Because we've had a few stories a little bit like that on this show of people experiencing the weirdest things on university campuses these days. The atmosphere seems unbelievably fraught. And unless you're very careful, you might find yourself the wrong side of a of a mob coming at you. What is it that you did wrong in their eyes, do you think, really? What, what is it they've got against you? Well, it's, and it's perfect for the themes of this, uh, this interview, uh, because I think it's all the things that we're touching on. First, in 2018, I published an op-ed that I don't think should have been controversial, but it was an op-ed um, uh, praising the mentorship of Justice uh, then-Judge Brett Kavanaugh, who became a justice on our Supreme Court. It was before all the uh, controversy about um, sexual harassment came out against him. But I stand by that. I just said he has mentored so many of my women students. After that, I basically had a target on my back. You know, um, it, it, it was just lack of reason. I was part of this complicit misogynist facilitating all this stuff. And I've since 2018, it's just been like that. Some students will not take my class. I'm, I see horrible things about myself. Secondly, um, I write about political tribalism. I hate identity politics. And I, I, you know, on my syllabus, I have this big banner that basically says this class seeks to provide, um, seeks to promote lively discourse among people of all political views. Um, you know, don't take this course if you're not, uh, if that's going to bother you. And colleagues of mine, they said, oh my God, if you do that, you'll get three people. But 120 people signed up, and it's very popular. So that's going very well. But some people don't like it. Some people think that if you are not on one tribe or the other, and just you know saying that the other half of the political world in America is Nazi, you know, uh, just un-American, um, whatever, um, racist, then you are doing both siderism or whatever, and that you're not. So I think that is part of it, that I, I um, am not towing the line. I'm just, I have various positions, some on the left, some on the right. And finally, related to the Asian American theme, and I've never gone there, uh, Freddie, I have to tell you, I, if you had asked me all my life, I would never say discrimination. Um, but it's weird, like there, there's, there's this thing about me being really powerful and placing so many students and I'm intimidating students. And when I look around, there are so many colleagues of mine of all other ethnicities who are doing way more. They're hosting dinner parties. They place way more students. They, I mean, they, they say egregious things. So I do wonder why do I keep being the subject of this? Um, I'm not saying one way or the other, but I will say that my Asian American students think it's a form of, um, I think the term is implicit bias. Um, so that's kind of, you know, I mean, in a way I've been the victim of the kind of political tribalism that I write about. Like I'm just um, not clearly on one team, so I have to be canceled. And I guess the last year has made all of this more intense as well, hasn't it? I mean, I know that, you know, as you mentioned, the, the virus uh, emanated from China, the policy of lockdowns and, and having such a kind of interventionist approach to try and contain the virus also came from China. And a lot of people definitely feel that the West is 
behaving more Asian suddenly in that they are, as a government, they're more happy to control more of their citizens' lives, basically. Have you, what, what's your position on that? Do you think there's some truth in that or? Yeah, um, so I have been following this whole COVID thing through the lens of tribalism and it is outrageous. You know, I, during the pandemic, I had to flip between television stations the right wing Fox and the left wing, you know, MSNBC, just to figure out if a certain drug was effective. You know, it's, it's in, in other words, some people at the beginning thought the pandemic would bring people together, but now it's everything about it is also political. Um, as to my own view, you know, I'm mostly just frustrated about this point. Um, uh, you know, I could see in my students that wearing the mask, double mask, triple mask, was an extremely, it was, it was almost like a being on a team. You know, it was, it was, um, that's progressive. That's left wing. Um, when in fact, you know, it should not be that like, it's, it's like, I just want to know if the masks are effective or not. And they're important. And when do, can we stop wearing them? Um, and then you saw on the other end, equal ridiculousness, which is I'm not going to get vaccinated. I'm not going to wear a mask. And this is a sign of my tribe leading to other disasters. So, so I, you know, again, I don't fit neatly into, um, into boxes. I know there's some people that are very much against all, um, you know, this policy or that, depending on which administration came in. Um, for me, I just regret that there's been so much bad information and that I see human behavior that I can clearly see as more politically driven than actually by science. And I'm not even equipped to know what the science is exactly. So you don't think then that the whole idea that essentially in, in trying to compete with China and the other Asian countries, the West is having to sort of mimic some of their methods, you know, you don't, you don't believe that? Um, yes, I think there's a lot of irony about the pandemic, right? You know, there there's these lockdowns and really, I, I feel them, they they do feel very authoritarian. Um, and I do feel a kind of cultural revolution vibe sometimes. You know, you I once walked into a restaurant, I'd forgotten to put my mask on and it's like calling out and just, you know, kind of denouncing. Um, so, but again, I see it more through my political tribes lens that there's just a lot, they're, they're kind of two teams. Um, and I, what I uh, so yes, it's it's there's 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 a there's a feeling of much less kind of libertarian American style freedom going on. It's it's much much more at the other end of things. Um, I, I do notice that. So we've got then a situation with the tribes that you've written about, who are more suspicious of each other maybe than they ever have been. Um, we have the new president Biden who has made a point of having almost no white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in his cabinet. Uh, and there's then a, you know, the obvious reaction to that, which is that people are fearful that, you know, the new elites are not going to be white at all. And that's this, there's this sort of slightly dangerous dynamic going on, isn't there, between a, a, a white majority and these newer groups that are sort of, as they see it, getting prioritised. What, what do you think the, the danger is of this. A lot of people are saying is, why is this moment so fraught? Why is it like this? Why does everybody hate each other? And I identify two factors that make this moment different than any other historical moment in the United States. And the first is that for the first time in US history, whites are on the verge of losing their majority status. 
uh, you know, for 200 years. I know that's a very short time compared to the UK. Um, you know, the United States has been economically, politically, culturally dominated by a white majority, for better or for worse, and with white being a slightly moving target. But that's been the dynamic. And you know, the result of that is some terrible things can happen. You have slavery and, you know, you, that's what happens when one group is so dominant. But right now, it's a weird moment because whites are also on the verge of losing their majority status. Now, every group in America feels threatened. You know, it used to just be the minorities. That, but today, it's not just African-Americans and, and, and Hispanic-Americans who feel threatened. White Americans feel threatened. The second factor, very quickly, is I've coined this term market dominant minorities to refer to a tiny little um, ethnic group. Like cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Like, say, the Chinese in a country like Indonesia. I don't know if you know this, but Indonesia is huge, you know, 200 million or something. I don't know, maybe that's off. But the Chinese are only 3% of the population in Indonesia, but they, are, they control 70% of the economy. And they're just so resented by the poor indigenous uh, Indonesians. And I've written about the terrible dynamics and how democracy in those contexts can actually lead to these ethno-nationalist movements where you have this angry majority, less educated, really resentful of that little um, kind of powerful minority that's viewed as an outsider. The U.S. never had this problem. You know, we had other dynamics kind of, again, white majority, you know, oppressing poor you know, minorities. But today, I think this phenomenon, I don't know if you guys have it, what I, you know, people call coastal elites or cosmopolitan elites. It's a, it's a 
they're they're viewed as not really American because they don't even care about us in in the center of the country. They care more about the people in Africa and and uh, you know um, other countries. They they're globalists. And it's actually, um, it's not an ethnic minority, but this little group of cosmopolitan elites is very insular. They tend to marry amongst themselves. They talk the same way. We, I'm in that category. Yeah, in all the Ivy Leagues, you you wear the same brands. You go to the same private schools. You have the same liberal views. You, I mean, not always liberal, but cosmopolitan views. Um, and so I've noticed that dynamic, that there's a, lot, a sense of a populist um, big movements in the country that are very resentful that this little minority controls Washington, controls Hollywood, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, all the Ivy Leagues. And I see a lot of that dynamic that's new too, um, that makes the United States today actually more like a developing country in some ways, in terms of the kinds of political dynamics that we're experiencing. So it's interesting because normally when people talk about races and ethnicities, as you say, there's the sense that they are the oppressed ones, they are in a minority, and there's usually a sort of dominant white majority that needs to be pushed back in some way. But what you're saying is that America is almost reaching a, a tilt point where we also need to have a concern for the white majority because they're going to start feeling put upon as well. I think it's like 57% of white Americans feel that they are more discriminated against than minorities. Um, and it's not just a Republican thing. Uh, you know, um, I think, again, I, I don't have the stats in front of me, but, you know, 40% of Democrats, uh, white Democrats, feel that because of affirmative action and uh, various other policies that, you know, they are the subject of discrimination. So, and it's even worse than that, Freddie, because it's not just monolithic white um, versus non-white. You know, I've written about how the, um, basically class and education have split America's white majority. You know, the, the whites that are in the cities like New York or at places like Yale or Atlanta are so culturally different than the, the poor rural whites that formed the base of President Trump. These two groups of whites are almost, um, they don't intermarry, they hate each other, they, they don't eat the same food, and they're almost like an ethnic difference. It's almost like there's an ethnic difference between them. So that's another big rift, um, let alone all the fracturing within minority groups. So, t I mean, I guess I come back to the idea then that wouldn't the only way to soothe these distinctions be to talk about them less somehow? Because... There's always going to be a new subgroup, and if we're if we're trying to reach equity, this phrase that gets used a lot, and we're constantly tracking everything and trying to make sure that everyone is in the right proportions in all of the right boxes, everyone is always going to feel somewhat put out for some reason or another. They're underrepresented or overrepresented. Wouldn't it be better yeah. to just track it less and chill out about it? I know exactly what you mean, and I love the ideal of the liberal cosmopolitan dream where we're all just, you know, not any color. But I've written um, about this other concept, what I call a supergroup. Uh, this is a little bit of an alternative to what you're proposing, but very consistent in spirit. And that is, I think it's possible, I think, to hold any country together, um, you know, America or, or even Great Britain. You know, you need some kind of glue. It's complicated in Great Britain's case because, you know, imperialism is so, you know, out of favor, obviously now. Um, 
Well, in the United States, it's been our constitution. We need some overarching identity to hold the country together. After that, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I think America at its best, I don't think we're at our best right now, but at its best was a place where individual subgroup identities could also flourish. And, you know, maybe it is something to do with the demographic balance suddenly becoming so threatening. But, you know, when I was growing up, it was kind of, you could be Cuban American or Chinese American or Irish American or Italian American and be really proud of your identity. And I'm eating this food and I speak this language, but you also are also first and foremost in some ways American. You know, you have, and I think that's the real crisis right now. I think that that overarching identity that's tying America together, I think we're losing it. So, so what could it be then if the old overarching identity of America was this highly successful um, people who had left other countries and formed a new successful upstart country and it was dominant around the world and it was the biggest economy and it was the greatest power and it saved Europe and all of that. If that all seems a little bit re receding into the rearview mirror, what's the new American identity that can start to glue together these groups? Well, I think for us, it has to come back to the U.S. Constitution. So I look with dismay. You know, I, was, I gave a talk at a private school and the, the principal, the head of it, whispered to me, said, this is terrible. As a white male, I can't say anything. But, you know, 80 percent of our students view America's founding fathers, you know, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Now they view them with disdain. They're just these white male rapists. And, you know, this is... And I think that's a terrible development, right? I mean, I think it's possible to acknowledge that they were very flawed men. They, of course, I'm all very much in favor of not whitewashing our history. Acknowledge that they had slaves. They, you know, they didn't live up to the American ideals. But that's totally different from something I really object to, which is saying, oh, you know, the principles in the U.S. Constitution are just smoke screens. Actually, America is a country built on white supremacy, or it's a country built on genocide. You know, I, I, I think there's maybe it's, it seems like a word game to some people, but I don't think so. I think that to answer your question, we you guys have different options. <laughs> the United States only has the constitutional principles as an option. We weren't an ethnic nation to begin with. We started off talking about Asia and the US and, and China. And actually, that sort of brings us back to it, because whilst the US is having such a crisis of whether it should be proud or not of its own history and principles, and it is a sort of fight in amongst itself, the Chinese approach is the exact opposite, a flaw in the opposite direction, which is just relentless propaganda, shoring up support for their government and constantly giving good news of how they're such a force for good in the world and are going to build their strength outwards. There feels like a, a mismatch there, doesn't it? Would, do you think the West actually needs to take on some of that? Or is that then a dangerous idea in itself? Of course, um, uh, of course, authoritarianism has terrible dangers. You know, uh, even when things seem to be going very well at a particular moment, the whole problem with authoritarian regimes is that you can never guarantee that your beneficent dictator, even if he is beneficent, which I don't think you can say right now of, of China, but you know, even if you have a pretty good regime, you can never guarantee they'll stay that way. You know, that's the problem with unchecked power. They can start mowing people down. So so in the end, I, you know, I, I, I'm in favor of, you know, free market democracy. But yes, having said that, you can see how, um, uh, you know, for example, patriotism 
patriotism or just kind of pride in country. That's something that the Chinese government is using to unite the country because they are an authoritarian regime. They can do that. Um, and it's really effective. You know, in the United States, patriotism is has been tribalized to be if you wave an American flag, that's that marks you as a Republican. And that's kind of crazy. Like, why should that be? It's not logically dictated that that's that has to be. But unfortunately, that's kind of what's happened, that that if you are sound kind of patriotic, that puts you on the right. So so we're in the United States and we are at a disadvantage in that respect compared to China. We can't harness nationalism, if, you know, even if it's I mean, there are dangers of that, too. And you can also see the Internet, which I've been thinking about. I'm not in favor of Internet control, but you can see how the, the Chinese government is using that. It, it's, it's got safety valves. It's, you know, monitoring. Um, it lets there, there's actually surprising more leeway than sometimes caricatures portray. Like they let the people do a lot. It's only when you threaten the regime that they kind of crack down. Um, and to not acknowledge that is a mistake because you're just you, you always have to understand what the system is without caricaturing it. But in the United States, the Internet is basically allowing us to eat each other up. I mean, we have these echo chambers of hate where, uh, again, having just been through this, I can't believe it. Um, so so there are uh, it's something really to think about, like these two different models, one built on democracy and diversity, the other built on authoritarianism and ethnic homogeneity. I mean, opposites. At the moment, it looks like smoother sailing in, 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 in China, but I don't think that's something that you can always count on. I mean, you could just look at what happened in other parts of the history or other areas where you've had authoritarian regimes. Um, so, yeah, I think we need to figure out ways that we can shore up our and deal with the, some of the, the, the fundamental problems that democracy often poses and the democracy that diversity poses. We've got to have a way to kind of still have a common identity. You know, I'm somebody that I favor diversity. I'm, I'm the immigrant's kid. But I also think that we have to find ways to not just have, you know, just have a whole country full of different people with different backgrounds that don't feel any connection. I think that's a disaster. Do you think the difference is philosophical, ultimately, and actually the fact that in the West we've had 250 years of a liberal tradition that has progressed and that has taught people to question and to throw off authority as a, a kind of virtuous thing to do. It's all about escaping the tyranny of the past and moving forward as an individual is sort of the, the story of Western liberalism, isn't it? Whilst uh, they haven't had that in, in a lot of those Asian countries. So do you think there is actually now a, a cultural difference about how they think of themselves as individuals versus a collective? I do. I actually think it. I know it's always dangerous to speak in such broad terms, but yes, I mean, um, uh, you know, China is a very familistic um, culture, and Confucianism is the main source of that, and it's that's been in China for <laughs> millennia. And you know, even the Cultural Revolution uh, that tried to break that up in the Cultural Revolution. Mao took families and broke them up and tried to turn family members against each other, sent them to different farms, denounce your mother. It didn't work. Eventually, after the Cultural Revolution was gone, families came back together. Now, however, one interesting question I'm looking at is whether capitalism is finally going to break that down. And I don't have the answer. This is just goes to your question as, you know, you have more consumerism and um uh, is there this natural tendency as people get wealthier to kind of move more in the direction of individualism away from the family? And you saw the Chinese government being so panicked about this about 10 years ago. They passed a law 
making it illegal not to respect and take care of your parents. They tried to, you know, in an authoritarian way, legislate filial piety, which is fascinating. It's so Asian to try to do that. Um, so you think there might actually be, you think the culture will continue to evolve? Because that was a big sort of theory that really hasn't proven correct so far, has it? That, ah, oh, when we, we let China into the world uh, trade organization and they start getting a more sort of democratic in their economics, there will eventually be a real democracy. But that really didn't happen. But you think there will be sort of a, a, a movement towards individualism in some way? I'm not sure, partly because it's still an authoritarian government and partly because Confucianism has 3,000 years of roots, if not, you know, um, so it is a very, very, I know it from my own family, you know, that um, uh, my husband is Jewish American and we have completely different views about, you know, I just assumed if my parents uh, age that they would come live with us. And, you know, he has a very, you know, a different set of assumptions. So so I live this myself. Um, and I think it's hard to know. I mean, I, I think that the Chinese government recently very consciously brought back Confucianism after years during communism where they tried to make it go away. Um, and I think part of that is addressing this fear that, wait, with capitalism and people getting rich and all this pop music, are we going to get more Western? So I, I think the jury's still out on that. I don't know the answer. So the con uh, you've t mentioned Confucianism a couple of times, and I'm so interested. What's the... The kernel of it for you. I mean, is this a, is this a, a way of thinking that you yourself? Oh yeah, think seriously Confucianism. About? So this is the very lowbrow version of it. But can, uh, Confucianism is a series of kind of concentric circles, all these relationships, and the center is the parent-child, uh, and that's just like inviolable, you know. Um, and then the emperor to the subject is part of that. Like you. All the subjects must look up to the emperor. Um, and then it gets more detailed. It's like, you know, youngest child has to look up to the older brother and wife to husband. A lot of the stuff that I totally don't subscribe to. But this filial piety thing, um, which at the larger level is subject to emperor, is a deep strand in that. So when I was growing up, you know, I when I got to law school, it was really hard for me because when I was growing up, my parents said, always respect your elders. Your teacher is always right, you know? Um, and that's just, I, and it made me a good student. And there's some really nice things about that too. I don't want to make fun of it because, you know, sometimes I see in America, we have the opposite problems. There's no respect for, 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 your, for your teachers. Um, but then when I got to law school, I remember a law professor called on me and said, Amy, you read this judicial opinion. Do you agree with it or not agree with it? And all my classmates had their hands up. They had all these views. And I had no view. I was like, a judge wrote it. It must be right. <laughs> so I had to train myself. It took me a while to kind of change my thinking. So that's what I mean by culturally ingrained. Like it's, you don't even know. And, and, and it's not bad or good. Like I, part of me loves the idea of respect for authority. Um, but not too much, not too much to the point where you just respect an authoritarian leader no matter what they're doing. It does sound conservative, doesn't it? I mean, that that's what's sort of ironic because you, we think of China as this sort of communist left-wing center, but actually those kind of impulses, respect for the family, uh, respect for authority, is really traditionally a kind of right-wing I guess so. You know, I, I've always thought that it shouldn't, necessarily be that way. I've had talks with progressive friends like, you know, I wonder why in the United States, 
um, things like, you know, national security or, or um, family values? Why did that get associated with the right? But I, I think you're right that it has right now. Um, so in that sense, yes, these are more conservative values. So when, if we zoom out then, do you feel, looking at the whole state of the world, I mean, there's a lot of talk about a new Cold War between America and China. There's a lot of internal tension, as we've been talking about, within the US. Do you feel like there is a way out and that we're going to reach a new kind of harmony at some point? Or do you just see a road to more and more tension and more and more division? I hate ending on an I don't know. You know, all, my whole life I've been an optimist. Um, I think there we're still going through some growing pains uh, after COVID. We're going to have to see how this shakes out. There's been a lot of finger pointing and there is so much anger right now. Um, you know, sometimes I feel like I can't even survive in my own my own university. Um, so at the national level, you know, I I am hoping that uh, without much basis, I'm hoping that uh, um, we're going to, um, you know, move a little away from some of this um, extreme populism and ethno-nationalism. Um, I don't have much of a basis for it, but I, part of it is I feel like I feel like people are exhausted. You know, I feel that there's a silent majority in a lot of places. Uh, I'm not talking about China now. I'm just talking about a place like America where you have the most extreme voices that you hear all the time. and Everybody else is bullied and afraid. They don't want trouble. They don't want to be targeted. They don't want to be canceled. Um, but I sense a kind of exhaustion and, and just loathing people so much. Um, you know, even me having recently been called out in the subject of the smear campaign, this is a weird thing to say, but I, 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 I was benefited by the fact that so many other normal people have also been the subject of these similar smear campaigns. I think it changes the view a little bit. So I know I'm not answering your question, but I'm just hoping that maybe we go so extreme and almost like almost fall off a cliff in all these different global and national and local ways that people just want a, a return to some more uh, like a milder form <laughs> of, of politics. So there'll be some harmony via exhaustion. Maybe. <laughs> Not a very inspiring way of putting it, but I hope so. Okay, Amy Chua, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Amy Chua joining from New Haven, Connecticut, where she is a professor at Yale University. She is also a author and commentator. And really, we were diving into the whole question of what it feels like to be Asian American and how the tension we read so much about between a more Chinese cultural worldview and a Western worldview might or might not be resolved. I thought that was really interesting. Thank you to her and thanks for joining. This was Lockdown TV. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.